Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, this is Claude and Lewis. I am a PGY5 at the University of Rochester Integrated Cardiac Residency. Today I am interviewing Dr. Turek. He is the Chief Section of Pediatric Cardiac Surgery, Associate Professor of Surgery, and Associate Professor in Pediatrics in the Division of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery at Duke. He's also the 12th TSRA President in 2009. Today, we will be discussing minimally invasive techniques for congenital heart surgery. We'll be focusing on benefits, utility, and types of procedures. First off, Dr. Turk, I want to thank you for allowing us to record this podcast. I know that I appreciate it and certainly our listening audience. So let's get started. I know that recently you have made several publications in the recent and past regarding minimally invasive cardiac surgery in a congenital heart surgery cohort. What do you feel is the landscape of minimally invasive cardiac surgery as it pertains to congenital heart surgery at large? Well, Claude, and first of all, thanks for having me uh, for this podcast. I think this is a, a very nice medium uh, to, to get some ideas across uh, in our field. Uh, the landscape for congenital heart surgery when it comes to minimally invasive cases is, is somewhat interesting. Uh, you know, cardi, cardiothoracic surgery has, has been a field that has adopted uh, to, to the different challenges that we've faced. And we've, we've also had to adopt uh, to other forms of interventional procedures uh, that have become more minimally invasive. And as a result, uh, we, we've changed uh, our practice as well. But the vast majority of this has been in the uh, adult cardiac realm and the general thoracic realm. We, we uh, run into some limitations when we deal with, with children uh, that have uh, congenital heart disease and trying to do minimally invasive approaches. And, and a lot of those limitations have to do with things such as uh, small size of the of vessels and structures with, with which to, to do minimally invasive approaches, um, small size of, of peripheral vessels uh, for being able to go on cardiopulmonary bypass. And then we have growth potential issues. So if, if you're doing something in a child uh, that, that puts in such as a fixed size valve or a, uh, things that, that fix the size on, the, on these patients, uh, these, you have to realize that these structures have to grow in many cases uh, for these kids. So I think as a result, many of these, uh, many of these approaches in kids have not caught on as well uh, and, uh, because there are, there are these limitations. I would also say that one of the other issues is that we're just really not trained in pediatric heart surgery to do minimally invasive approaches. Uh, you know, we, we do a wide variety of operations, um, many of which are some of the most maximally invasive operations that are done uh, on, on the, the little babies. Uh, and I just don't believe that this is part of uh, our training paradigm uh, in the congenital realm. So uh, in, in me getting into, uh, in our program here at Duke, getting into congenital uh, minimally invasive approaches, a lot of it has been adopting from what's been done in the adult world uh, and then using some of their expertise uh, in order to translate that into pediatric cases. Absolutely, and very interesting. I think you touched on this briefly. I just want to 
engage a little bit more in this conversation in regards to the different age groups, as you mentioned, there's a wide variability. What would you say are some of the procedures that you would consider in different age groups? For instance, are you doing anything in neonates, uh, for instance, as it pertains to minimally invasive cardiac surgery, or there are certain age groups you think are more feasible for different types of operations? Right, that's a good question. So when you get to the, the very small children, the neonates, the infants, um, the two and three-year-olds, I think that um, you know these these are not children where you can necessarily do minimally invasive surgery um, from a uh, from an access standpoint uh, on bypass. Uh, the, you know these are patients that yes you can decrease your skin incision that you're using if you're doing a sternotomy, but but by and large you need to put those patients on bypass centrally, and uh, the way you're going to access their their uh, cardiac lesion uh, is going to be through a, a standard sternotomy. Uh, there are some off-pump procedures that we can do minimally invasively, and some programs around the world have done, uh, such as different vascular ring uh, type cases uh, that can be done through VATS um, uh, approaches or, uh, or through really mini thoracotomy approaches. Um, when you start to get older children uh, that now have blood vessels that are large enough to where you can use them for peripheral bypass, then you start to, to have some options uh, for, for bypass cases. Um, and so the youngest we've done, for example, for a, a patient uh, through a sternal sparing approach for, um, I believe it was an ASD, uh, was a five-year-old uh, where we were able to go on peripherally. Now, you know, when you are going on peripherally, there are some, some cautions because this can be where, where you can run into some complications. And the last thing you want to do is, is render um, a lower extremity non-functional by, by using the femoral vessels for bypass. So we, we by and large, when we put patients on peripherally in any, in any child, uh, we sew a, a graft on to our femoral artery uh, and then cannulate the graft directly. So we're getting flow to the lower extremity the entire operation and we're not causing any kind of uh, lower extremity ischemia. But when we get patients that are older, we can put them on bypass. We can do some minimally invasive uh, approaches for um, We've done minimally invasive approaches for uh, pulmonary valve replacement, uh, many different types of lesions in the right ventricular outflow tract. We've done minimally invasive approaches for all types of right-sided lesions, uh, uh, sinus venosus ASDs, core triatriatums, uh, scimitar syndromes. Uh, we've done anomalous aortic origin of a coronary artery through, through these minimally invasive approaches as well. Absolutely. Oh. What do you feel are some of the benefits in the minimally invasive approaches um, for this cohort, both anecdotal experience and even those reported? Right. So, so I, it's difficult from a pediatric standpoint to uh, say for sure what, what your uh, benefits are from a, from a standpoint of uh, getting a shorter length of stay and, and post-operative pain requirements, because our, our series in general are fairly small. Uh, in pediatrics. But if you adopt the experience from the adult uh, realm, what you realize is, is that uh, these patients do return to work much faster. Uh, they have less post-operative pain in many cases, uh, and they, they also have a shorter uh, post-operative length of stay. The one thing that we do know um, is that uh, the cosmesis is much better uh, in, these, in these procedures. Absolutely. What cases or case complexities do you believe are feasible? You 
you've alluded to, to those somewhat already. I wanted to get into a discussion in regards to the type of the modality. For instance, you have a right anterior uh, mini incision. What procedures do you, are feasible from, from that exposure? Right. So, so talking about the right anterior mini incision, this is, a, this is an incision that's in the uh, second interspace. This is the one that's used by many programs on the adult side uh, for their aortic valve replacements, for their minimally invasive aortic valve replacements. Um, some people will call it a heart port, port platform or, um, or mini incisions or mini thoracotomies, but uh, this is typically the, the incision that's, that's really been championed by many of the minimally invasive non-robotic groups uh, for doing aortic valve replacement. And, and that's actually how I got into that, that incision. Um, my uh, colleagues on the adult side here at Duke uh, have, have do most of their aortic valves through such, such an approach. Uh, and I approached them about using that incision uh, to do anomalous aortic origin of a coronary artery. And so we, we, have, we have an experience doing that approach um, probably done about 11 patients, I believe, uh, with that approach. Um, you know, the, the results have been, the results have been fine. We've had a lot of conversion uh, to open procedure because when you're doing that operation, visualization is of the utmost importance. Uh, and you, you need to make sure what you're seeing with that coronary. And, uh, and I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the best approach. Uh, you know, when you're pushing the envelope a little bit on minimally invasive cases, uh, I, think it's, I think it's a good idea to push the envelope, but also to know when, um, when you, you could potentially be compromising safety and, and be able to convert uh, if you have any, any questions at all. And so we've, we've had a, a decent number where we've converted to either a full sternotomy or, or a, um, an upper hemisternotomy uh, to complete the, the coronary case. Uh, I also had published in the past a uh, a, a series of patients where I'd used the upper hemisternotomy. And I, I do think the upper hemisternotomy for the uh, anomalous coronaries is a, is a fantastic approach. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of become my, my go-to now uh, for, for anomalous coronaries. But, you know, I think there is, there is a, um, there's a utility uh, for that, that approach uh, with the right anterior mini incision. Uh, but you would have to make sure your anatomy is exactly what you thought it was uh, and you have to make sure your visualization is is uh, sufficient, uh, or you should convert. Absolutely. All right. Well, I was also going to ask you about the left anterior thoracotomy incision. So the left anterior mean incision. What are some of the procedures that you feel are are capable to be done from from that exposure? Yeah, the the left anterior mean incision. So we call the the right the rammy, and the left is the lammy. And and uh, the left anterior mean incision is an interesting approach. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't even thought about that approach, and, and I have a colleague, um, again, on the adult side here at Duke, uh, who is, is doing his um, pulmonary thromboendarterectomies through, through those type of mini incisions. And uh, he approached me one day, and he said, you know, it's interesting. I was doing a left-sided uh, PTE. He said, I was right on top of the pulmonary artery, and I realized, wow, this might be a really cool approach for you. You like minimally invasive cases. This might be a great approach for you for your pulmonary valves. And, uh, you know, I, my, my initial response to him was, well, you're, you know, you're doing these PTEs and virgin chests, you know, the, all of these pulmonary valves have had, you know, transannular patch from their, their prior TET repair. You know, these are not, these are not virgin chest type cases. And I, I would imagine the scar tissue would, would make that prohibitive trying to do it through such a small incision. Um, 
but nonetheless, I was, I was willing to give it a shot and, and, um, and it, that's been wildly successful. Uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think if you have the right selection of patients for that, you know, and which, which is basically patients who have just had transannular uh, patches after a TET repair, uh, or other patients who, for some reason, do have virgin chest. Uh, we we published one patient of a uh, one case of a patient that had a uh, pulmonary fibroelastoma that we took off the pulmonary valve through that approach. But that that is actually a um, it's a it's a very very accessible uh, incision. Uh, the visualization is excellent, even though it's only a five centimeter uh, sternal sparing incision. And, uh, and once you go on bypass through the groin and really decompress the heart, uh, the dissection is, is not awful. And uh, we've, we've been very, very successful. And we've only converted, I think we've done 16 of those cases now from a left anterior mini incision, and, and we've only had to convert one of them. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've been doing some reading, and there was a study by Visterini et al. Um, from 1998 to 2008 they performed port access minimally invasive surgery. They also had a utility incision in the, in the RAMI exposure in 106 patients. And uh, during the study, they found that it was otherwise an effective approach and considered that it should be the standard approach using uh, their heart port access system and endo-aortic clamp. Have you had any exposure to port-assisted procedures, be it epicardial replacements or otherwise? I have, and you know, I, that's, that's kind of the next, the next realm that I, I want to get into is, is more port assisted or even robotic uh, type cases. You know, our, our experience in our program is we, we developed a technique wherein you can place um, epicardial leads. Uh, obviously in our adult, in our congenital population, we have a number of patients that, that are, uh, have contraindications to having uh, intracardiac leads. So we, we place a decent number of epicardial leads, and I thought, boy, it would be nice instead of subjecting patients to full sternotomies or large thoracotomies to, to be putting these epicardial leads in if we could somehow do it through a VATS approach. So we developed a VATS, uh, three incision VATS technique uh, so that we can put on epicardial leads. And it's a small series right now, but we've, we've done about uh, six patients uh, with, with that approach. And uh, it, you know, it's fantastic as far as the, obviously the post-operative length of stay, there's, there's great literature on the VATS approach and how that is superior uh, from a, uh, compared to a, compared to a thoracotomy as far as uh, mobilization of patients and, and length of stay. Absolutely. Uh, during this port-assisted procedure, uh, if you could just discuss with the audience as to how you're, you're getting the access, how you're getting the visualization, are you using a larger incision? or are you by straight bats um, having a port assistant guidance in, in this procedure? No, it's, it's, it's total bats procedure. So it's, it's typical three, three incision, five um, millimeter camera port, uh, and then some, a couple one, one centimeter working ports. And uh, we, yeah, we're able to do it all completely uh, via vats. You know, when you're putting these epicardial leads on, you need to sometimes put them on, um, on both ventricles. Sometimes you need to put them on, on uh, an atrium in order to get some dual chamber pacing, depending on what the patient needs. And uh, through a, I've done them through left vats, where I've placed leads on, on biventricular chambers. Uh, I've also, through a left vats, put, put some on the left atrial appendage, as well as on the ventricle to, to get dual chamber pacing. 
And then uh, we've also even even done a right vats and, and placed uh, leads on the uh, on the right side of the heart. Awesome, that's amazing. Using the entire spectrum of cardiothoracic surgery training. That's right. That's right. You got to <laughs> remember that when you're training that. Uh, you know, no matter what you want to do, you can, you can learn a lot from, from the other specialties. Can you speak to uh, any experience with hybrid surgery, such as hybrid placements of valves, you know, using invasive exposure and potentially transcatheter uh, opportunities? Right. Yeah, so we, we've, we've, had, um, we've had some success with, with hybrid approaches using our, using our uh, LAMI incision our left anterior mini incision. So we've had a couple of patients that had extremely large uh, pulmonary arteries uh, and they were, they were uh, very high risk patients that we didn't necessarily want to put on bypass. And uh, for those patients, we were able to use a LAMI incision encircle the main pulmonary artery, uh, which was too large to land uh, a melody valve and then put a PA band to the size that was sufficient for the interventional cardiologist, and then they would deploy their, um, uh, they would be able to deploy their, their valve. We've also, in, in kind of in the same vein, we've, we've taken patients that, again, were, were high-risk candidates for open surgery. Uh, we've done, we've done sub-xiphoid incisions, access the right ventricle, and then we use per-ventricular deployment of a, of a transcatheter valve uh, in the pulmonary position. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. What, what do you feel are some of the barriers to adopt uh, minimum invasive techniques? Yeah, I think, I think the largest barrier is experience. And it's very difficult to leave your comfort zone uh, in your practice on how you do, how you do cases uh, in order to, to try some of this minimally invasive approach, some of these minimally invasive approaches. For me, it's, you know, I, I have to say it's, it's been a big benefit um, being here at Duke and working with my adult colleagues. Uh, my adult colleagues have been fantastic. They're, they're really experts in minimally invasive approaches. And, uh, and when I've ventured into these, uh, I've definitely leaned, leaned on them uh, for their expertise, and uh, and it, it's been very very successful. So I think that would be that would be my recommendation to congenital heart surgeons that that want to uh, extend their practice uh, into some minimally invasive approaches. We we definitely are not the specialty that has the experience for these because many of our children just are not candidates for minimally invasive approaches. So we don't have the breadth of experience. Uh, and my my adult colleagues, I look at every every adaptation that we've made for novel minimally invasive approaches in congenital heart surgery, whether it's the, the, the RAMI for anomalous coronaries or the um, upper hemisternotomy for anomalous coronaries or the LAMI for all of the right-sided RVOT procedures uh, or even uh, our venture into, into some of the minimally invasive um, sternal sparing approaches for right-sided lesions. Uh, and even the VATS approach for epicardial leads, all of those have involved um, uh, collaborations with, with adult, uh, adult colleagues. Absolutely. And I guess for our last question, um, do any of these incisions or exposures allow for a bailout 
um, you kind of alluded to uh, just converting to open, which is absolutely reasonable. Just wondering, um, as you do the procedure, is there an opportunity for you to have, I guess, uh, use of that same exposure to do just a little bit more? Right. Uh, in many cases, um, in many cases, if you feel like you don't have the sufficient exposure, you, you're going to have to just convert to, the, to a full sternotomy. There are ways where you can take that, either the rami or the lammy, and you can just extend them uh, through into the sternum and then do an upper hemisternotomy, uh, which will, will, will limit your, uh, your sternotomy incision, obviously. So that, that's positive. One of the cases we did with, a, uh, with the VATS approach for epicardial leads we spent a lot of time uh, putting, trying to put the leads on. Uh, did a lot of the dissection through the VATS approach. Uh, this was in a redo chest. A lot of the dissection through the VATS approach. And then all we had to do was really extend one of those incisions to a little bit in order. And then we finished, we completed the, uh, the lead placement through a much smaller incision than we ever could have done. Otherwise, we would have had to have done a full uh, thoracotomy in order to to free up all the adhesions to get those leads on. So it did assist us and allowed us to make a much smaller um, thoracotomy incision. And so yeah, there, there, are, there are some bailout options. You know, in the end, I think the, the advice I would give is if you're going to push these limits, try to do some of these minimally invasive approaches, you have to say your number one priority is, I have to be able to get the visualization I need or I must convert. All right. <clears throat> well, thank you so much, Dr. Turek, for allowing us to have this interview and this podcast. Again, I certainly enjoyed it, and so will our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate being asked to do this. Absolutely.